Hello and welcome to Cinema to the Letter. This episode's that egregious film known as The Greatest Show on Earth. Cinema to the Letter, we break down the very nature of cinema, letter by letter. For each episode of a film miniseries topic, we cover six films that fit a C for classic, I for indie, N for new, E for egregious, M for masterpiece, and A for atypical. Who doesn't love an acronym, am I right? Uh, I'm, I, I'm Thomas, and I'm uh, Buttons, a clown. <laughs> Not the first Jimmy Stewart impression we'll have this episode. Oh, I'll just lasso that impression right over. Oh, I am Brian. And um, just right off the top here, I kind of hate the circus. Like, gonna be honest with you, I've never really been a fan of the circus myself. <laughs> I mean, this was gonna be one of my questions off the top. We might as well, yeah, start on this. Yeah, the circus is an interesting thing, because obviously we're talking about the greatest show on earth. You all know it. Out there. Of course. Familiar. <laughs> Everyone's seen this movie. Right, everyone's favorite Best Picture winner. Um, yeah, and uh, this movie takes place, obviously, at a circus. And it's weird how, like, when I was a kid, I remember I really loved the circus aesthetic from movies, mainly Tim Burton movies. Right, like of course. Like Big Fish and whatnot. Um, so I, I kind of enjoyed that aesthetic. But then I went to, like, Ringling Brothers, like, the circus that is featured prominently in this particular movie and was like kind of the recognizable circus for a while um and i remember even when i was a kid i was like prime age i was like six or so uh, i just remember it bumming me out i just saw particularly like when they would i didn't see any like horrific animal abuse straight up i did just see like they were really rushing like the elephants and the lions all this other stuff just to like get the routines done so they could have the next act show up and that just kind of bummed me out. And I'm like, I'd rather go to, like, a zoo, which is slightly less right. harmful to animals, by extension of, like, leaving them the fuck alone for a bit and feeding them. Or, like, a fair. I feel like a fair is kind of, like, circus adjacent, right? It's just kind of got, like, attractions and stuff. It's not like, you know, it doesn't have, like, attractions like this or anything, but it's kind of got a similar... You get cotton candy and peanuts and popcorn and stuff like that. And what, what, look at the the freak show as the parlance calls it. Right. Um, which I do have a story about that, how um, I was scared of the concept of a freak show because my dad would always tell me about the story of him and my uncle going to one of these fairs as kids. And there was a whole act where like a woman transformed into a gorilla and it scared my <laughs> uncle so bad that he like literally ran into a pole. <laughs> so okay. I was so scared of these things that like, I would like they would go in like my sisters and my dad would go into like a freak show thing and I would be just like standing out there terrified like no there's no way I can't go in there there's no way and then you go to one of these things later and you see these things are like pasted together like right freaking uh like stuffed animals kind of thing it's like see the amazing fish boy and it's like oh it's like two crustaceans like <laughs> melded together or whatnot <laughs> yeah it, it, it's it's definitely like I can see why. The circus really went out of favor, uh, particularly, like, 
the late 20th century and then by the 21st century. Like, Ringling Brothers went bankrupt and now is back but doesn't have animals. Even when you watch movies about, like, movies about the circus, of course, you always kind of think about that side of things of kind of, you know, the treatment of animals and just kind of the way that they are kind of, like, treated as entertainment and, you know, for our viewing and all that stuff, which has always kind of, like, rubbed me a bit the wrong way. But then you get a movie like this, which kind of is about, like, the, you know, performance and the the magic and all that stuff which is in this movie. And to be fair, a lot of it also focuses around more, like, the human performers. Like, there's a lot of animal stuff, but there's a lot, like, main characters are the trapeze artists or a clown, um, as is the case with our boy Jimmy. The clown. The clown. Buttons himself. (laughs) Uh, Oh, buttons. Something said repeatedly. (laughs) Yes. This or in distress, in like a very serious situation, like, Buttons, we need you. Like, <laughs> it's very. For funny. real, though, Buttons is the MVP of this movie. We'll get to it. He is, yeah. For, for sure. In many for, ways. For, like a, for a lot of reasons, right? But, but yeah, uh, so this is definitely a movie of a bygone era, uh, the greatest yeah. show on earth from 1952. Notable, as I mentioned, for being a Best Picture winner, the only Best Picture winner of our lineup for this Oscar season. I want to repeat that. Is that true? <laughs> this is the only Best Picture winner of our lineup for this Oscar season. We picked a good one. The greatest show on earth, yeah. <laughs> and we fit this into the E for Egregious category. While, you know, we, we said this at the start of the season, we'll emphasize it. Uh, we didn't know going into this much about this movie beyond its reputation as kind of being one of the more lower voted uh, Best Picture winners. Mm-hmm. And um, so we went into this totally blind, and we're like, oh, this will be interesting to talk about. And I want to say out there, if there are loyal listeners who like watching the movies prior to the episodes coming out, we're very sorry. <laughs> we're, like, so sorry that you suffered through all two and a half hours of this. I mean, yeah. I I mean, my, what I'll say about, like, my knowledge prior to going into this movie is I knew that it was a Cecil B. DeMille film. I, I, I knew of his, what his films were kind of like, big and extravagant and all that stuff. Uh, and then, of course, which, you know, we've talked about before, we both knew this by our connection to Steven Spielberg, uh, where I kind of more knew it from in The Fablemans when he watches the, I'll say it here, frankly, imp- incredible, like, train wreck scene at the end, which really was weighing on me this entire movie. <laughs> I'll be honest. Right. I was just like, when are we going to get to the train car like wreck? Because that's like, you know, it looks great in the Fablemans and the way he kind of like, it becomes this like obsession where he like has to recreate it with the little trains and everything. And like, yeah, so that kind of like got me interested in the movie. But, <laughs> you know. That's about two hours and 15 minutes into this movie. It really well. is. I, yeah. I'm sure I would love to hear Steven Spielberg talk about the whole movie because when I heard him talk about it, it was like in his A&E biography, which is like back in like the late 90s, like a, a crucial text of Thomas Lore, that A&E biography episode um, where he just talked about like, I just remember this train crash and it was so fantastical and amazing. And I loved it. And I'm like, Steven, what do you think of the other two hours and like 20 minutes of this fucking movie? Right. This is the thing where like the Fablemans shows this movie as being like literally the greatest show on earth like it is this like you know movie that's so influential and everything but i'm like i can't imagine little sammy fableman in that theater like sitting for two hours of like a love triangle and like this like weird like it's just so long it's a really long movie 
I don't understand yes. how he like sat through the entire thing. <laughs> to be fair, not the longest movie we could have picked as sort of like an E for egregious best picture winner. Because there's true. like a couple other ones that are much longer or even ones that didn't win best picture. Like we almost talked about doing not Cecil B. DeMille's Cleopatra, but the 60s Cleopatra. Yes, the Joseph Mankiewicz one. Right, which is like, what, four hours long or something like that? Yes, yeah, I think it's like four flat. So uh, we, we avoided that, but at the same time, we did pick one of the ones that like, you know, as film fans, we do kind of love the idea of like checking off lists. We make yeah. plenty of lists on Letterboxd, shit like that. So the, this has definitely been one like this, or Around the World in 80 Days, which is 30 mm -hmm. minutes longer than this, um, or, <laughs> right, or some of these <laughs> other ones that like have a bad reputation, but you're like, well... Is it really, like, that bad? Is it that terrible? What exactly could we get out of this? Maybe we'll find something, you know, at this point that could be underrated about this movie. And, um, well, I don't know if we quite found that this time. I mean, yeah, well, because, like, uh, yeah, the reputation this movie has is kind of, like, it's forgotten. And even when it is spoken about, it's very maligned. But... It is still like a Cecil B. DeMille movie, and it's, you know, one of these 50s Technicolor movies, and it has like, you know, it's got big stars like Charlton Heston and James Stewart. But yeah, it's not a very good movie, I don't think. <laughs> no, for sure. Um, also trivia, by the way, about the Spielberg thing, it's also featured in more of the worlds. You can see like a clip of it like yeah. early on, it's playing on television. Weird. I... I don't even think I've noticed that, and I, I love that movie so much, but I don't know if I've ever noticed that. <laughs> no, yeah. And, you know, let's go ahead and get into it. Let's play a bit of the trailer here for The Greatest Show on Earth. What, Mr. DeMille? That's a wonderful sound, Ernie. Yeah. A laughter from children. Children of all ages. Everything forgotten except the magic world they're in, the circus world. You know, one of the reasons we made the greatest show on earth is because the world needs laughter today. <laughs> that kind of laughter. But the real circus story is more than laughter. It's an exciting story, a human story. It's a story for all ages, from grandmother to grandchild. It's a motion picture for everyone, with a heart <laughs> and a sense of humor. So, uh, The Greatest Show on Earth uh, came out in 1952, January 10th, 1952, which is interesting. Um, I'm sure, then again, this is at a different time where movies would like do roadshow stuff. So I'm yeah. sure it like got to the Academy's attention when it lumbered into town like a circus. An elephant just like plopping in front of people like, well, watch this. And as you mentioned earlier, it's uh, directed by Cecil B. DeMille, who um, is a fascinating filmmaker mainly because of just the breadth of his time working, which goes from the literal start of cinema yeah. to like the mid-50s. That's like a massive early chunk of cinema that he was around actively working during. Like I read up a bit about his background. I'm not a scholar, but from what I understand, basically he got his start in the theater and then eventually, you know, as he was working in the theater, he got kind of bored with it and decided to, you know, go out to Hollywood with a guy named Samuel Goldfish, future Samuel Goldwyn. We should have kept it. Metro Goldfish and Mayor. Hell yeah. 
<laughs> um, but he basically helped start uh, initially Paramount that way. Like the company right. they formed together to make like the small movie called The Squaw Man, which apparently DeMille made two other versions of that same movie. Like that's the other thing that guy's known for. He making like very prolific silent films, uh, making very like big giant silent films and then remaking them a couple decades later. <laughs> Right, which also happened with, like, the Ten Commandments, and, like, right. I feel like that was a big thing, though, of, like, you know, films that were made in the silent era, now that, like, sound and technicolor are a thing, like, let's remake them and make them bigger and with sound and all this stuff. And to be fair, also interesting that he managed to survive that long. Not a lot of directors can say that they, like, transitioned into the silent era that well. And the same way people talk right. about that a lot with actors, but even directors also had that kind of problem. And DeMille kind of not only did that transition but also was like hey i'm gonna make the biggest fucking movies anyone's ever seen like when yeah. you watch a cecil b demille movie it tends to be massive gigantic like huge sets elaborate costumes big stars and that's all technically in the greatest show on earth i've only seen a few demille movies you've also seen like what how many i have only seen the ten commandments and it was in preparation for this episode I, I took that as the opportunity to watch a four-hour movie. I watched the, like, roadshow version that had, like, the overture and the intermission right. and, like, all that stuff and the exit music and all that. Uh, yeah, I managed to do a little bit of catch-up in that I watched one other movie, which I found out was his third-to-last movie. Because, basically, like, DeMille's career ends with Samson Delilah in 49, then The Greatest Show on Earth in 52, and then Ten Commandments in 56. So I've seen the end of that auspicious career. And I think all three of those movies have a similar kind of like, like we mentioned, like big elaborate sets and costumes and big stars. Like in Samson and Delilah, you get people like George Saunders, who I love. Um, you might know him as the voice of Shere Khan from the original Jungle Book. Oh, okay. Yeah. But he had like, he's an all about Eve. He was one of the Mr. Freezes on the Batman Adam West TV show. Oh, he's in... um. Alfred Hitchcock's uh, Foreign Correspondent, which I, I love that movie. That's a great movie. Yeah, an amazing character actor. And also a young Angela Lansbury's in it. Um, oh, this is cool. the first Hedy Lamarr film I've seen. I would argue Samson, Delilah, and the Ten Commandments do a better job of presenting that kind of like wide scope and utilizing all its different actors that well. Like, I'm sure when you watch the Ten Commandments, you were like mind boggled by like, oh, fuck, they're in this? Them? Yes. Them? Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of, yeah. Like, I mean, the, the one that kind of got me was, I think, um, uh, Edward G. Robinson is being in there. And he, look, the thing with ten, the Ten Commandments, I will say, is everyone is wearing basically brown face. I mean, let, you know, to be kind of blunt about it, like, it, it is definitely yeah. mostly white people with a lot of makeup on their face and skin and everything. Are you saying that Vincent Price is an Egyptian? <laughs> Vincent Price. Gosh, yeah. Seeing Vincent Price in there, seeing, like, Eric G. Robinson, seeing, like, John Carradine, yeah, it, it, it's insane. But I will say, like, I think The Ten Commandments is a kind of staggering movie in a lot of ways for me. Like, watching it for the first time, I, I think it feels like a 50s movie. It, it's four hours long. It is, like very i don't want to say slow but you know what i mean it's kind of that old like 50s kind of rhythm i think it luxuriates um, in every single sequence yes however when you get the most incredible like sets and the most incredible costumes that are so intricately detailed and are so like extravagant and you get like five thousand maybe more like extras to just 
be in this movie and, and, and yeah, everything like just the spectacle of it all is very like overwhelming and is really like sells all of it. And uh, like that movie, especially kind of like really like the, the technicolor, especially when you watch any of these old technicolor films, like they just pop and that movie like really pops, like all the color in that movie is just really like vibrant and like, I, I love all that stuff. I, I totally agree with that. I think especially like we should mention the one Oscar that movie won a couple years later was visual effects. And those are yeah. like phenomenal for the time, like the parting of the Red Sea and all that stuff. Samson Delilah also has a bit of that in that spoilers for this literally <laughs> over 70 year old movie at this point. At the end of Samson Delilah, Samson like gets his strength back and he like destroys a pillar. So this giant like idol to a giant god um, fucking falls on everybody. And it's this incredible mix of like some obvious rear screen projection, but mm-hmm. also really great model work. I think that's the thing. Oh, yeah. they, they marry those two, even like for the time, you can see how like, oh, it's still is like massive and big and kind of makes you look past the flaws. Something yeah. that will be very crucial to this movie, particularly the rear screen projection. <laughs> yes, yes. But even then, like, like in the Ten Commandments, when, when there's a lot of that rear screen projection, like uh, one of the scenes I think about is like the... It's when they're they're like finishing the city, and like uh, Moses is kind of like doing like the the like you know he's looking through like the little lens or whatever that whatever that thing's called the oh the telescope yeah like the telescope thing to like like survey the area or whatever and like the when the pharaoh shows up and is like are you betraying me like that scene is just like incredible like use of like yeah that rear screen like projection and you know these models of like the the giant like statues and everything like it looks really incredible like even still today in a lot of cases, even though you can see a lot of like the, you know, the seams of, of the work, it still looks really extravagant and everything. Particularly the, the opening, which like I've seen the Ten Commandments many times because it's like usually an Easter watch for me, mm-hmm. but a lot more in my childhood than it was now necessarily. But I just remember particularly like the opening bit where they're showing all of the like slaves that are like dragging behind parts of oh, like, yes. the fucking statues and shit and the pyramids. It's amazing yeah. that they're able to do that in like 56. Yeah. It, it, it's a really like massive movie. And I, I think it's a very impressive movie, even though like I do find it a bit boring, but that, I mean, that, that might be, just be my like sort of, I was forced to go to church as a kid and like, I always found it really boring. So I guess that's, that's part of it. But like, Still, I I think it's a, it's a really great movie, and like, I also think Yul Brenner is like really good in that movie. Fucking like Heston Heston is like fine, but Brenner is like really good in that movie. I I really like his performance, and um, Anne Baxter who plays Nefer- Nefertiri, I think she's also really fun. To be fair, at least a lot of like Old Testament stories tend to work better as like kind of isolated from the religious angle of it, even. Because like yeah. even like a Samson Delilah works a lot because it's just like oh a guy is like the strongest man on earth. And then he just gets his hair cut and everything falls apart. <laughs> just truly like ruin. Cause, cause this lady, like the Samson Delilah is like an incredibly sexist story where it's just like, yeah. Oh, Delilah really wants to fuck Samson, but he's like, Oh, you can choose a bride. And he's like, I'm going to go with the princess so I can have like power. <laughs> and I'm not going <laughs> to go with Delilah. And she just goes after him and like stuff like that. Or even like the 10 commandments with like the whole brother, fighting against brother thing and like the literal wrath of God coming down with like frogs and shit. There's an yeah. inherent like grand spectacle to the degree they we don't make 10 commandments back in like the twenties. Then again, the fifties and we got Prince of Egypt and which I also rewatched last night, which uh, 
fucking rules. That movie is great. <laughs> I love Very good of movie. Egypt. Yes. I have um, thought about then, rewatching the uh the Ridley Scott one. Uh, uh right. Exodus Gods and Kings, but I I was literally if, trying to search for the title and I couldn't remember. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a very forgettable movie, but like, I'm very curious to watch that now. Just weird uh, tangent, just because like, does it even like? I bet it it has to like at least look good because Ridley Scott's directing it. I mean, look, even Robin Hood looks good. That movie's fucking sure. terrible, but it looks very good. <laughs> yeah, but um. Yeah, I did want to watch a few more of his movies, but um, there's stuff like his Cleopatra, which is just not accessible, really, it looks like. I tried uh-huh. finding it on the internet. It's just not there. Or um, something like The King of Kings, which is like a, it's a two and a half hour silent movie about Jesus. So I, I kind of, I, I was a little trepidatious to start that one because it's, you know, <laughs> a lot. Yeah, especially Jesus was too into his like slapstick at the time, trying to catch up with like Keaton and Chaplin. I don't he think was. it would have worked out. He really him. was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that that sort of grand spectacle of like like you said is like it's in the greatest show on earth. I keep almost calling it the greatest showman. By the way, no, this is not the greatest show. That's not what this is. <laughs> that movie is also bad. I think. Look, at least it has fucking life to it. Any circus movie I've seen that I thought sucked before this, I have a little bit more respect for. Even the greatest show that has Hugh Jackman and Zac Efron like dancing. And shit. That's true. It's got Zendaya. Yeah. He could have put Zendaya in this movie, I'm going to be honest, you know. <laughs> there were a few problems with that, uh, particularly a certain span of time in which she wasn't alive. <laughs> Too much of that in her schedule. But, um, yeah, we got to, okay. So, Brian and I watched The Greatest Show on Earth, and I still remember, like, I watched it last night, right from the start. I was initially fascinated by the credit, which is my Zoom background currently, mm-hmm. of James Stewart as Buttons a clown because I was aware that Jimmy Stewart was in this movie. And from what I understand, it was kind of like a paycheck thing. Like he got a lot of money off of this, which oh, makes sure. sense for why he would bother to do it. But I did not know he was a clown named buttons who didn't take his makeup off ever and has a secret past. And as we kind of referenced earlier, that stuff is very fascinating. He's a side character in this movie, but every time he pops up and he's just talking about like, Oh yeah, I can't. Uh, you know, I don't want to take all my makeup off. And oh, you saw a cop coming around. Was he looking for a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I the only two things I knew I knew that Charlton Heston was in this, and I knew that Jimmy Stewart was in it, but that he was kind of lower on the uh, on the credits. He's very um, much the end credit. Yeah, in the modern parlance. Yeah, and like, I'm conflicted with him. I love Jimmy Stewart. First off, I think he's incredible in everything. You know, any, anything you watch, right? Whether it's like Vertigo or the Philadelphia Story or uh, I, I, over the holidays, I watched It's a Wonderful Life for like basically the first time all the way through and I sobbed. I, I love him. He's great. It's a decision to have an actor who is like one of the most just incredible screen presences have clown makeup for the entire thing. <laughs> um, and, um, I don't know. It's just so weird. It's very weird that he's in this. And he's not bad, of course. I don't know if Jimmy Stewart was bad in any movie. I'm sure, you know, maybe you could tell me if you think of any. He's usually good in anything. He's in like he's even good when he was dying in his last film uh, voiceover role in American Tale Five Goes West, where he plays, um, oh God, I forgot. It's Wyatt Burp, I believe is his name. <laughs> Great. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> What a swan song for a great actor. 
he's good, right? Like, I think the kind of emotional parts he delivers, especially when he's kind of, like, more emotional and, like, doing one-on-ones with, like, uh, Heston or with, um, um, gosh, what is her name? Betty Hutton. Betty Hutton, right? Like, I, I like a lot of the kind of emotional stuff between them because he, I mean, he nails it. He's He's a great actor, but it's a weird plot line to this movie. It's a weird character, and... It is kind of shoehorned into this movie along with, like, a bunch of other stuff. Um, I, I think that this movie is trying to do that whole grand spectacle kind of thing, and it's doing a lot of different plot lines. It's got, like, the love triangle stuff. It's got the stuff with, like, uh, like Angel and, like, her, like, kind of boyfriend guy. The guy who, like, kind of, you know, is, is, is after her. Um and like the stuff with like who who are those guys supposed to be? Are they like mob the mob or something? Like I, I don't know if it's ever like said they, who they are. Yeah, at some point they say that they're the guys who used to have the games that would be at the carnival. But Charlton Heston, I think, threw them out because they were corrupt or something. Right. So right. So they're gonna get their vengeance in like a couple scenes. Like they because this movie is so long, and it scat has so many plot lines. It has that problem of, like, it'll scatter plot points to the degree that, like, when those guys came back, I'm like, oh, fuck, right, yeah. Right. Those guys. I was even wondering, like, who, is, is Jimmy Stewart the villain of this movie? It's like, oh, no, it's these guys. Wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, because there's that early scene. You were speaking of kind of the, the rear screen projection of this movie. There's that early scene between those two guys when they're, like, eating peanuts in front of, like, in the... In front of the monkey? Yes. And it, yes. It looks really bad. Like, even... So bad. It... <laughs> I do like that he's like, the guy's like, have another peanut. And he gives him like the bag and he has like money in it. That's kind of fun. And a lot of it look like a lot. There's a lot of that stuff like when they're at the show. Right. And they're just kind of doing like conversations and it'll be like that, the, the you know, the rear screen projection. And it looks very spotty, I guess is the word I'll use for that. Um, it looks like shit, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a lot harsher on this movie than I am, to be honest. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. But when yeah, when those guys show up again, I'm like, oh right, we haven't like dealt with these guys. They're still around. Like what's but but the movie, I think, because it has so much that it wants to do and it wants to say, and it has like, it never gives them time to really be a villain. And then by the time like uh uh. What is that guy's name? The one who ends up kind of betraying them, uh, Klaus. Klaus. That makes sense. He was German. <laughs> he was yeah. When he like betrays, I'm like, oh okay, that's that's where this is going. What a weird right because he saw detour. Angel perform at one point at the circus, and she's like, his Angel is on the train. No, <laughs> stop the train! Don't you see the lights? Maybe we should give people. Some vague idea of a plot synopsis. Sure. Since we yeah. haven't really done that. Um, and spoilers, it's going to be hard to do. Uh, but basically, um, the titular greatest show on earth is a circus that we see. And uh, the main guy who runs it is Brad Braddon, which such a creative name. Brad Braddon. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, as played by Charlton Heston. Um, mm-hmm. who is, like, a no-nonsense, he's very, like, you know, talks in his gravelly voice, and it's like, ah, oh, we're gonna have her be in the center ring, and all this other stuff. And he has, like, a relationship of some sort with Holly, Betty Hutton. Um, there's kind of, like, a weird will-they-won't-they they going on here. Right. You know, there's also Buttons, who we mentioned, Jimmy Stewart, who's, like, the lovable clown, who has some kind of dark past that he's hiding. Um, and, uh, so... The circus is still trying to go, but, like, they imply that uh, negotiations are pretty tough with financers, and it's like, oh, we gotta get, like, a big attraction, 
So they end up getting the most sought-after possible trapeze artist, <laughs> the great Sebastian, <laughs> yes. uh, played by Cornell Wilde, which for the record, I that's my favorite thing about the circus, is the weird kind of like showmanship names like that, and even like the announcer guys. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. in this case, is played by, uh, well, at least like the narration is Cecil B. DeMille himself. Um, whenever they have oh, those like, okay. really boring transition bits where it's like, look at the circus and everyone's parading around. Like, he does the same fucking narration bit like five times in this movie. I can, I will say something. Maybe this is where we disagree a bit. I actually like those parts of the movie a lot. And I think that they're like, they're kind of the element I find most interesting about this movie, weirdly enough. Because this whole time I'm trying to think, like, like well, why would it be so influential to someone like Steven Spielberg, of course, besides the fact that, like, it's got the big train wreck at the end. And I think the way that this movie is trying to kind of sort of showcase in this grand, like, Cecil B. DeMille way, like, this is how the circus operates, and this is how it, like, does all these things, this is how they assemble everything, this is how they take everything down, it's how they, like, you know, move from town to town, all that stuff with, like, the transitions. And that, I think, is kind of weirdly enough an element of the movie i found like oh okay this is what this movie is kind of trying to say it's kind of about the the logistical angle of like showmanship and like the 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 putting on a show and all that stuff i I like those elements a lot actually and i find i I get why like it would appeal to someone like steven spielberg who like you know is a filmmaker of course and could you know sees i think a lot of the behind the scenes kind of stuff of like how this right. is put together or, or, or um, even like audiences at the time which is like a big factor we haven't really talked about it's just the fact that like at this time you either saw the circus when it came to your town or in a filmed form like this there was no other way to see like or if you wanted to see animals you had to go to like a zoo not every town has a zoo so it's like oh this movie is bringing that kind of experience to an audience that doesn't see that that often which right. I could see the appeal of that, where I agree with you. I think the most interesting stuff is when they're kind of showcasing the actual Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus who participated in this production. Uh, and a lot of it is shot in Sarasota, Florida. Hey. It's interesting on that level. I think there's a really good, like, 70-minute documentary about the circus in this right. movie. Yeah. Which I think is its big trouble, is that you'll have those moments, and then you'll have the most phony bullshit plot lines that we cut to. They're mostly like really unentertaining. Because <laughs> like yeah, it, it does all the stuff where it's like this is how they assemble the the tents and it's put they're putting on a show and all that stuff, which is like I think really interesting and like I think seeing like them actually set up the tents and everything and like get people to do all the stuff like that's cool. And then like the next one of those is forty five minutes later, and you have to deal with like you know the the plot of the movie in between those, and it's it's not that interesting to be honest <laughs> right particularly that love triangle that we were kind of referencing earlier that's between yeah. like holly the great sebastian and brad um the these like three incredible people who you really give a shit about um i mean i'll say weirdly of those three because i wasn't as familiar with uh, betty hutton and cornell wilde before this i hadn't seen them in anything but obviously charlton heston when you hear like chuck heston is in the movie you at least have the expectation of, like, he's going to go for it and enunciate every word. Um, but this is very clearly, like, a paycheck thing for Heston. He's, like, so bored. He literally spends the climax of this movie laying down. <laughs> does, yeah. I mean, I am not, I think, nearly as familiar with Charlton Heston as, as I think you are. Like, for example, um, I think the only kind of classic 
Heston I've seen are like Ten Commandments, Planet of the Apes, and I just recently watched uh, Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles movie, which I love. Yes. Um, but weirdly enough, I mainly know like late Heston. I know him in like True Lies and In the Mouth of Madness. The narration in Hercules. Of course. You go, girls. You go, girls. Yes. <laughs> it's great. Um, but that's mainly what I know him from. And I, But I agree. I think he's not very interesting in this movie. The thing he has going for him is like he is handsome. He looks like Indiana Jones sometimes because he's got like the leather jacket and like the hat and everything. Perhaps another inspiration for Mr. Spielberg. That's true, exactly. But main the thing I think he's bringing to this movie is like just that that presence, right? Like he like he has a presence and he has like he's very handsome, he's very striking. That's kind of it. I don't think he brings anything else to this. I don't think there's any real like dimension here. I don't think his character is that interesting really like he, he just works hard and that's kind of it <laughs> like <laughs> yeah and because they tease some interesting things about like particularly sort of the supporting characters of the circus which was really my biggest disappointment honestly was that we kind of have like this love triangle and buttons and those fucking dudes who like show up occasionally but a lot of the other sort of like side characters are mostly just kind of like set decoration like, they have yeah. um, actual, like, Ringling Brothers performers, even, like, actual clowns like Emmett Kelly and Lou Jacobs, um, who I mainly knew Emmett he- Kelly just because that weird hobo clown thing oh, yeah. was, like, a thing my grandma really likes. And to the degree <laughs> that there was a great point, like, we recently moved them to a, a nursing home, so we had to, like, get rid of their stuff. And they she was texting, like, my grandmother in a big text chain she always puts people in. <laughs> He's like, uh, does anyone in the family want this little clown? It, it's so adorable. And everyone's like politely saying, no, it's fine, man. No, we don't, we don't really want it. And then she tried pressing it. And somebody, I don't know who, one of my cousins or uncles or whatever, was just like, it looks creepy. I don't want it. And she was like text defending, like, he is not ugly. <laughs> he is so cute. Uh, spoilers, no one bothered with that. Oh, necessarily. damn. No, no one got it. Is it like a little statue or like what? what is what is it? It was like a little like lamp statue thing of him like lying on some pillows and just looking like. Oh, it's like, oh, it's a lamp. Okay, that's kind of, yeah, I, I wouldn't want that on my like nightstand <laughs> personally. No, at you. no, but even though it has like some of these like original like actual talents there, they have like a couple scenes where they showcase like the weird parade that they do, um, which yeah. we should talk about some of the details of that later, but. Um, yeah, like, they have, like, they show off some of the acts, but then once those plot elements kick in, we are limited to, like, five actors and maybe a couple animals. Like, you'll, yeah. get, a gor- you'll get a a gorilla, you'll get a lion, you'll get an elephant. Um, Lots of elephants. But, yeah, which I feel so bad for every animal in this movie, because it looks like they're yeah. not having a fun time. You have that with, like, a lot of older movies where you see animals. Or it's like, they probably weren't treated very well, but this movie has some of that on screen, like, during the train crash. Where, like, yeah. the, like, the lions are having to, like, get out of their cage that's crashed. And I'm like, this feels, like, really distressing to these animals and really fucked up. Yeah. The only one I think is, like, there's, like, the one elephant with, like, um... Because, like, Angel, I guess, like, her thing is, like, the elephants. And, like, she hangs out with one. She's always, like, in the trunk. Like, in the trunk, kind of, like, sitting in it. The only way to travel, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there in 15 minutes. My elephant's taking a while. <laughs> get, not giving him five stars on Uber. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, another element of this movie, I think, is 
the performances of which there are like a lot, like so many of them. And I, I get it right. Because you want to show like actual performers, people doing the show. You want to, I, I, I like the idea of showing like cutting to the audience, like lots of like kids just kind of like, ah, like, you know, wide mouth, like really excited. And some celebrity cameos, most of which I didn't recognize at all. There were celebrity cameos. (laughs) Like, there are certain ones, like, there's the bit where um, they glide across, like, and two guys just eating popcorn and, like, in center frame. That Those are the only two I recognized, and it's Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I would but, not know who what they look like. I'm, I'm right. so sorry. No, I, I get it. Uh, look, I only <laughs> recognize Bob Hope mainly from The Simpsons. Oh, okay. Of course. Send me down to that boat show. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But but yeah, so like the, that's the thing is that they'll really diverge away. Like there's you mentioned, there's so much going on here, but at the same time, it all means nothing. So it's just this like weird, almost like circus style parade of like all these different acts. It just it reminds me of like sitting through Cirque du Soleil, which is like a really fun thing for like ten minutes, and the show's three hours long. I mean, yes, well, because like th- there is a really great. I think it's towards the beginning. There's a really wonderful shot of um, Heston. He's in one of those like tr- like little trucks, like little cars, and he's driving like through the set. And you get this like really wonderful like shot of like yes. all the performers in the background are like practicing and everything. Very Cecil Cecil B. DeMille, right? Like just really extravagant, really big. So many extras, all that stuff. That I was like, oh, okay, I'm into this. This is like really cool, just like really extravagant like circus stuff. I think seeing all the trapeze performances are like really interesting, and I think those are also the the best marriage of having the performances and kind of the more dramatic like story elements, right? Because often they're kind of doing it like, I mean, the whole like rivalry thing I think is like it's kind of fun, even though we can maybe get to kind of some of the more thematic elements a bit later, but. Yeah, like, it's interesting, like, the first time you see it, and maybe even the second time and the third time, but there's a lot of them. I mean, it's a a two-and-a-half-hour movie, and it it really feels long. Like, it really feels longer than two-and-a-half hours. And there's just so many of those scenes, and at a certain point, you're just like, I get it. I, I get it. The circus is very cool, and, like, the performances are very, like, what these people do is very, like, you know, impressive and all that stuff. But it sort of just becomes uninteresting at a certain point i think i agree with you like that shot you're talking about the big wide open shot with all the players kind of like rehearsing is interesting mm-hmm. but then you'll have stuff like the trapeze artist stuff happens and they always like fake you out and it's like oh no are they gonna fall oh no oh is it yeah. gonna happen oh no they do that like three times in this movie yeah. um but then like during those sequences they'll have actual trapeze artists balancing themselves on the wire and like truly like being like 40 something feet in the air and that's immediately fascinating but then they'll immediately cut to our actual actors on the worst rear screen projection I've ever seen in a movie prior to like 1960 like some of the most <laughs> garbage examples of like Betty Hutton like oh I'm gonna balance on my head on the wire and you'll see an actual trapeze artist doing that and then cut to Betty Hutton clearly like right side up but the camera's upside down being like, oh, whoa. And it's, and I really want to emphasize, this rear screen projection looks like sub Doug Walker video. Type of shit. Oh no, that's like the worst you could awful, say. Awful, truly awful looking rear screen projection, especially like even for the time, like we mentioned earlier, 
great use of rear screen projection in a lot of other movies. Even, like, driving sequences happened all the time like that. Sure, like yeah, exactly. Projection. There are plenty of, like, mm-hmm. great moments of people, like, driving in old movies. But this movie, it feels so much more inexcusable because of, like, how big it is that it exactly, looks this yeah. shitty. <laughs> right. It, it's just, like you said, it's juxtaposing, like her on the rear screen projection and it looks really bad contrasted with like some really great sets and some really great costumes it's a weird balance that the movie eh, pun intended um just it it doesn't work like it, it yeah it's it's very weird to contrast those two things and when you're doing it for two and a half hours and you're on your like the sixth show where you're just watching these people perform and it's cutting to the audience, just like clapping and cheering and everything. It, it can get very tiring. Yeah. Because in like most of the times where I perk up during any of these circus moments or just weird details, like during this parade we talked about earlier, there's a Christmas section and also oh, yeah. a Disney section. Oh yes. Let's talk about this. Right. Right, where there's just a point like during the parade where it's like, literally they have the announcer guy talking about like, well, here's um, uh, all our trapeze artists singing this song. There's a point where like they say that Betty Hutton's singing a song and they have that entire announcement over her going on like the parade float and they don't show her singing until like they cut away from that and they cut back to her singing. It's like, why it take this long to show her singing? Anyway, but they then there's a bit where they have like the Disney parade and I was like, wow, this feels weird. Like how would Disney allow this? And then I realized... This is pre-Disneyland. Oh, okay. But So, like, this is the only place where they could actually get, like, the licensed stuff out there. It's just like, I don't know, put them on the most primitive version of these suits. It's like Mickey, the Three Pigs, Pluto. And Goofy. Also, the Alice in Wonderland characters, which I yes. realized, like, is because this came out a year after that Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, there's the guy who's like, it's the Mad Hatter. And he's like really, really tickled by like all the Disney characters. Um, Apparently one of the other celebrity cameos who I didn't recognize. Okay. <laughs> That's, so That's the thing. Anytime they cut to random people in the audience who have lines, it's probably a celebrity cameo. Not okay. one of the Sarasota, Florida natives who got paid 75 cents to be extras. <laughs> I didn't know about the Disneyland thing, which makes more sense. My, I figured that it was because like, they don't look entirely like the like the Disney character. Like the Mickey right. Mouse head looks very a bit cursed, you know, in like a weird way. Like it looks very weird and like it, it looks like one of those like um like memes you see of like the, the twisted, like dark Mickey Mouse or whatever. I mean to be fair, there are worse costumes from even earlier. I mean, of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're the nightmare ones. Um but I think like I initially was in that camp too, because I thought it was gonna be like, oh, it's Morky Moose. Sure, and exactly, you're right. Doodle Deek uh, or whatever, <laughs> like screwed on copyright, but they say Mickey, Donald, Goofy, like all the actual names. Yeah. So it's like, I guess Disney will let them license it. I don't know. Walt was smoking now, like a couple packs and just like, whatever. <laughs> well, now uh, now Mickey's in the public domain, so it's, you know, they could they could, well, they could do whatever. <laughs> Steamboat Willie's in the public domain. Steamboat Willie. My apologies That's to true. the Walt Disney Corporation. <laughs> yeah, don't tread on our... Steamboat Willie slasher movie, one of 15 that will be coming out this year. <laughs> yes. But ours features buttons, so. <laughs> That's true. Buttons in the public domain just because, you know, they were just like, I, we don't give a shit. Like, I don't know who distributed this. <laughs> I think it's Paramount, right? Is it Paramount? I assume so, given, like, yeah, how it's buddy Paramount. buddy. Yeah. Um, not on Paramount Plus. Shocked. Shocked by that. Um,. <laughs> I mean, because they'll put everything else there on Paramount Plus. Why not at this point? Let's maybe talk a bit more about uh, Betty Hutton, who we've referenced a lot. 
and uh, also Cornell Wilde, who plays the great Sebastian, because they're kind of like the other two main characters besides Heston in this movie. Um, how do you feel about those two? Those two crazy kids. Did you want to see them get together? I, I mean, I will say, I think Betty Hutton is maybe the best performance in this movie. However, I think her character is a not given a lot to do and not given what? a lot of agency or, you know, it, it, because, and this is the thing, right? It's a fifties movie. And like, from what I know, Cecil B. DeMille was a, a pretty conservative filmmaker and it just feels a bit not great. Her character is mainly just like caught in between these two guys. And one of them is her boss who like, just does not give a shit about her really like in terms of like romantically right he like she is just like throwing herself at him and he's like hey move that elephant no move over over there no to the left no to the left i have and, no time for women i have to hug my monkey right exactly he's he's got his, his heart full of like sawdust is that what it was is right that the that's the line that yeah. yeah so there's like him and then there's like the great sebastian who is like the arrogant asshole and like is like, I I kind of like the fact that he's using the same lines with like, all the women like they had hit her and like one of the other like, uh, performers have that line where she's like he probably told you about like Paris and how the like he sees the sun in your eyes or whatever like, and she's like N how did you know like kind of thing but I don't know it, it's not a very great character and I I think only at the end when she like has to like, be the boss I guess it, does it give her like that that. A kind of any moment of agency and i don't i think it's it's far too late in the film they do kind of introduce that she wants to be like the star of the circus like she wants to say right, yeah ring. she's vying for that but like you said they do kind of sidestep any of that like the moment she finds out that like oh uh the great sebastian like wants to like is like stopping because like he has a he falls at one point and yeah. so Heston, like, very crudely is just like, well, guess what? I guess you're the center ring now. It's like, oh, but I don't want it like this. Those are the kind of moments where she has this kind of, like, gee whiz attitude that, like, kind of works for her character in a really fun way. Where she's, like, yeah. kind of trying to be almost like the, let's put on a show. Like, she's really, truly about, like, the actual show of it on, like, a performance level. Or, like, the bit where she's confiding to Buttons. Um, and she just says, yes. like, one of my, I think my favorite line of the whole movie where she says, oh, Buttons, I'm all ache inside. <laughs> <laughs> just yes. like such uh, like a funny once again like gee whiz moment and like the two characters are actually like kind of conveying something to each other even though they're also badly rear screen projected in that particular yeah. scene they it's are really yeah. rough but yeah i i wish she had kind of had like more of that energy because especially when the movie ends on her doing like the big song it's like it's the greatest show on earth and then she like she closes the the show on that and it's like i don't know where was this the whole time i would just yeah. like, like to see her perform or something like that as opposed to like, actually perform, not, you know, have the weird editing rear screen projection stuff that we talked about earlier. Well, and they, and, like, I love all this stuff as well where she's kind of, like, saying, like, it's at the beginning, uh, like we said, like, they have to hire the great Sebastian because he, like, draws the crowd. He's the, he's the big act. And so, like, she has just been given the center ring, but then she has to move out of the way so that he can be in the center ring because he only does the center ring. He That's, like, his whole thing. And... I think her, like, begging to, like, Heston just being, like, like, I'd, I've wanted the center ring, like, since I started, like, I've been, like, down in the, you know, in the mud, and, like, I've, like, I've done all the work, and, like, I've just worked so hard for this, and, like, I, I like that, and I, I want 
more of that type of character and of that kind of that idea to be kind of like expanded upon more and give give me more of that stuff but yeah it does like you said sideline her to being like just caught in the middle of these two guys who you know one is like a asshole and the other one is like also an asshole he's an <laughs> asshole but assholes. in a yeah but in just very <laughs> different ways um yeah but um but i i like her at the end like giving that that sort of performance when heston is like laying down just like and then she has to kind of give all the orders and everything like I, I like that kind of thing but yeah for most of this movie she's just like going between these two guys and it's not interesting and it's not it's just also just not a very good romance in any way like I, not that they don't have chemistry but I think it's very minimal <laughs> I, I don't think they have much chemistry together. Like, any of these, like, three people in a room. Even, like, the fighting chemistry that's supposed to be between, like, Sebastian and Brad a bit. They're kind of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to tough guy you. I'm You're going to out-tough guy me. Right. Let's see how we can do with this. And it, it's so weird because, like, especially, like, on paper, what Cornell Wilde is doing is exactly what I would want out of a movie like this. He's just, like, big and boisterous. His entrance is very fun, actually. Yes, it is. He comes over to the circus grounds with, like, a giant police escort. Like, like a bunch of police cars and motorcycles are following him. And it's like, oh, why is this guy, like, so famous for being a trapeze artist? And then it turns out the cops were following him because he was speeding. Well, yeah, she's, <laughs> one of the cops is like, I caught him speeding. And then the other one's like, I caught him for dangerous driving. And the other one's like, I, he was doing this. Like, it was, it's, like, all different things that he's been doing, right. like, on the road. I think that's, yeah, that's really great. And I love him just kind of, like... It's a great entrance as well of that because, but also him like him driving and like right in right through the middle, like he's like the biggest star. He doesn't care about like anyone else, whatever. And like, yeah, it, it's a wonderful introduction to him. And I think yeah, what he's doing is is very fun in this movie. And I think he's kind of like really playing up that kind of like, you know, I'm the I'm the best. I'm the, you know I do you know I'm the the best trapeze artist in the world or whatever. But yeah, he doesn't really have much chemistry with Betty Hutton. Most of the time, I think there's a few scenes where they kind of like actually, you know, have some nice moments together. But overall, it's yeah, it's not not really there. Yeah, especially like after, like I mentioned, uh, the Great Sebastian falls, his arm got crushed. So his right arm um, is like kind of scrunched up and he doesn't have a lot of movement or feeling in it. In a really nuanced and uh, <laughs> beautiful depiction of, of what it's like to be like, you know, uh, disabled. <laughs> Right, to survive an accident and live on with a disability. Uh, where he, like, initially comes in after, like, he's like, oh, I'm all healed up. And he's like, well, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to, I'm signed up with the rival circus uh, yeah. and everything. And I'm going to leave and goodbye. And then, I don't know, either Betty Hunter or Chuck Heston takes off, like, this drape that he has over his arm. Yeah. And it's just, like, literally Cornell Wilde having, like, a very poorly, like, scrunched up kind of thing for his arm like a position to put it in it looks like he's like just slept on his arm wrong or something <laughs> right yeah it's, it's barely anything and he's like no don't look at me i'm a freak no i didn't sign up with the other circus like, i'm, I'm I'd... quasimodo like <laughs> right exactly don't look at me sanctuary um <laughs> after that happens you would figure like okay this is going to create an interesting different dynamic there's going to be a bit more of like a fascinating struggle of, like, what's going on here. Maybe Chuck Heston will change his tune. Betty Hutton might have, like, some guilt about this. And that's kind of there, but also kind of forgotten. Because, like, even by, like, the time, like, we get our ending for this movie, 
Like, we didn't technically have to have him have any kind of, like, you know, uh, disability or anything like that. Because he, like, gets a, gives a blood transfusion over to Charlton Heston because he's the only one who has A, B, R negative blood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, that ending, it just, like, that, that whole, like, subplot, like, is kind of completely forgotten by that ending. And we're just like, oh, I guess, like, everything's fine because, like, the blood transfusion happened. So we're all just good? <laughs> what was even the conflict we were having earlier? Yeah. I will I will say, though, I, I do like during the blood transfusion, and this is, again, part of, like, when I really like the Great Sebastian and Cornell Wilde is, like, when he's being, like, ah, you'll have my blood now. And, like, when you look at your little children, you'll see me. Like, he's really, like, you know, having, like, fun just kind of, like, messing with him that he's, like, having to give him his blood and everything. But, um, yeah, I think that's really funny. But, uh yeah it's a re- it's a very like weird third act i think with like that whole thing that his ac- accident and then like the detective showing up and the kind of weird twist of like uh i already forgot his name klaus of klaus being like this like turncoat who like you know tries to rob them and yeah it's very messy and it's very weird in a lot of ways yeah especially like they have even sebastian hang around by the way during the circus because right. like he says like oh i'm gonna leave and it's like no you gotta stay and his job now is like handing out balloons to kids in the audience yeah but he even says before when like i think heston is like oh you can we can keep you you can do a job for us like you'll we can keep you employed and he's like no i'd rather like you know you're gonna I can't do this job and like, you know, see all the people doing their trapeze performances and kind of do that thing. But then he does stick around right. to see her or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. That's the thing. This movie like wanders around its plots. It doesn't like really yeah. explore them. It doesn't let them run their natural course. It just kind of like wanders in between them in a very What's... casual way. Yeah. And I think because it's doing so much because it's having to do the whole like intercut of like, you know, DeMille doing the whole, like, and when the trapeze artists move to town, this is how they do it. Like, that, all that thing, the performances, and then, like, it, it doesn't leave a lot of room to really flesh out the plot enough. Even though this movie is two and a half hours, it's kind it's insane. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's what's fascinating. Because honestly, like, if we had to have, like, that circus footage tied together with some kind of plot, I would rather it would just be Buttons' plot. Like, we kind of mentioned this earlier, but basically, yeah. like, Buttons' plot is that he's, like, this doctor who accidentally killed his wife, and then he left, you know, to join the circus, literally, like, disguise himself in paint. That's why he never reveals his paint or anything like that. We find all this out, like, near the end of the movie. So most of the time, we're just seeing Jimmy Stewart kind of look around suspiciously, or there's a bit where his mom shows up, which is maybe my favorite scene of the whole movie. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. where uh, he sees his mom in the audience, and he stops, like, going around with, like, all the other clowns. And comes over and is like under the guise of doing clown tricks for a couple kids in the audience, which Jimmy Stewart kind of does well. Like I don't He's... usually like clowns, but he kind of commits to the bit in a way where I'm like, I would see Jimmy Stewart the clown. Absolutely, he seems like kind of fun. <laughs> he works pretty well with even the other clowns. We see like the actual Emmett Kelly and Lou Jacobs. It's like I don't know, you fit in. Yeah. He goes over, talks to his mom, and it's just like they'll never see me. And like the cop, and she's like the cops are after you. They'll never see me with my clown makeup on <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah and but like even that plot point there's just not enough in there like i'm like i i don't know i'm like how did how did he kill his wife what happened how like 
give me some more juice there. Like, I, I don't know. There's just not enough of like that plot point. Um, that by the time like the cop shows up, I will say I did cheer when he sh- they show the picture. He's like, "Have you seen this man around here?" And it's just regular Jimmy Stewart. I was like, "Yeah, there he yeah, is." Yeah, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I like I, I like the way that it ends. Like his plot point of like, it, you know, they went. We we kind of teased it. Like I think I think before we were starting of like, is it Holly who goes after him and is like, "Buttons, we need you. Like you're our only yes. hope." Yes. Um. Yeah, I like him like having to do the surgery and he's like, uh, you know, it's a very great moment of like, but if I do the surgery to save his life, like they'll know who I am and everything. And it's and then but he risks it because they're a family and it's, you know, and I I love his kind of final thing where like the cop is like arresting him very begrudgingly. Like, you know, they kind of have like this mutual respect for each other after like what they've what he's seen him do, like saving uh, Brad's life Um, and him giving the dog to like the little girl. I think is great. It's great Jimmy Stewart stuff. Don't feed him too much popcorn or the pop. Yes, yes, exactly. It's it's really great stuff. But having that at the end there, and I think the last kind of 20, 25 minutes of this movie are really great and kind of almost tricked me into thinking that this wasn't a bad movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> because, like, I, I don't know. When we get to, like, the when we're starting to get to the train wreck and I'm like, I'm kind of like perking up like, oh, okay, this is it. We're finally getting to it because for the right, last... Right, you did the like, Leo point of the screen and everything. I did, I did actually do that. <laughs> but like, you know, because the last 45 minutes or whatever are just like, you're really trudging through this movie. It's it's very boring. Just on, like, I, I, I genuinely checked the time like four times while watching this movie and I was like, oh, I'm only an hour in. Like, Jesus Christ, like the Ten Commandments felt shorter. <laughs> I had that, by the way, but it was about 40 minutes in, and I was like, well, I'm an hour into this, right? <laughs> That's, yes. yes. Yeah, I, I had it 40 minutes in, and then an hour in, I was like, oh, I'm like, pff, we got like an hour left, maybe 30 minutes, maybe, and no, there's so much left. There's a whole nother, like, regular movie after this. Right, yeah. But what I will say, kind of, as we're kind of talking about this whole, the train sequence, I like when they're showing, like, what are clearly, like, model trains, and, like, a model of, like, a, you know, trees, and, like, a river, or whatever, I just really like that stuff. I love miniatures. Well, and also intercut with like some of the better like circus kind of like atmosphere stuff where like I love the fact that everything's packed, but before the train starts, apparently like all the circus workers are just like having dinner. Yes. Like on the side, like well, before the train starts and the train blows its whistle and then everyone's like, oh, fuck me, I get on the train. And everyone yes. like packs in. I mean, like, that's some of the fun stuff. That's the fun decor stuff in which we had more of instead of like what we were talking about earlier and also any scene where like... Betty Hutton is talking, like, with Angel and Phyllis, some of these other people. It's all just, like, them slut-shaming each other. Just like, oh, you've been around. You've been around. (laughs) Like, a lot of that. There's, like, a a kind of weird, like, towards the end, this weird, like, uh, I I hate using this term, but it's what's maybe, like, the cat fight kind of thing, where, like, I forget if it's Angel or Phyllis, one of them is, like, well, since you've messed up with Brad, I'll take him because he, you know, he'll finally want me or whatever. And it's this just weird, like, yeah, just like pitting these like female characters against each other, but only under the, like, they all just want a, this man. It, it's very like not right. You couldn't great. at least have like an all about Eve kind of scenario in the circus, which would be like fun and trashy, of just <laughs> yeah. like, oh, you're all vying for the spotlight, but it's like the circus. So this is all like, like very low stakes. But instead, it's like it's like you mentioned, like they it feels the most kind of like crass 
in a way of like, oh, this will be in the, the, the trailer where it's just like, gorgeous gals vying for Chuck Heston. Right. Yeah, as opposed to the stuff right by the train. Which let's let's go into the train sequence a bit in this, because like you mentioned, this was featured very prominently in the Fablemans and more of the world's very much inspired Spielberg. And I think it is fascinating just on like a pure spectacle level. And I get what like why we kind of both had that same thing of like when we saw it in the Fablemans, we're like, I get it, Sammy. This is like such a great moment. Yeah. Like it truly does feel like the the use of miniatures, like you mentioned, even like that's the better rear screen projection stuff where you do see some past some like people that are on the side, like by the train station. DeMille put all of his real grandeur into that sequence in a way yeah. that, like, I get why it stands out. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it is, like, it's really a point in the movie where, like, just some life is pumped into it, and it's, like, genuinely thrilling, right? Because, one, it's a heist. Like, basically, it's a heist scene. It's really cool, them robbing the train and everything. And, obviously, this is in The Fablemans, but, like, the way the car, like, flips... And, like, it just looks really great. Like, it looks really, really incredible still. It's it's kind of that thing, like, obviously, like, it's using technology from the 50s. You can tell that it's technology from the 50s with, like, the miniatures and the rear screen projection and all that. But it looks really great. And it's it's really thrilling. And it's very detailed. I love especially right. how, like, the, the, the train really looks. And that's where the, like, cutting to, like, between the miniature footage and then stuff where we see, like, actual size people works. Because you'll cut inside to the cars and people are, like, tumbling over, and, like, a big rod goes through the middle of one of the yes, cars at one yeah. point. It looks really incredible, and it's just, it's a moment that made me go, like, where the fuck has this been the whole movie? Like, why has the whole movie not been this exciting? We finally like, got to the fireworks factory, everybody. Right. <laughs> it isn't just kind of, like, one crash, and then we see the, like, aftermath. I love how much you see, like, the individual cars kind of like crumble and like fall and everything. Like, I think that stuff is really, is really great. Um, and great just production design as well of just showing like all of these sets just like crumbling and like falling apart and everything. It's, it's really great stuff. It's the same appeal that I would get out of like, say a Godzilla movie where it's like in a Godzilla movie, like I know these miniatures aren't like extremely accurate and it doesn't look like a building's actually exploding or whatever. Uh, when Godzilla steps on it, but at the same time, you can see so much of, like, the craft and energy that yeah. goes into, like, a sequence like that, which is, once again, very much contrasted by Chuck Heston after all this laying down, just like, oh, you gotta move up this thing, <laughs> it's crushing me. Uh, and then the elephant helps out, which, I don't know, elephant should have just, like, let that guy fucking crumble like Jesus. you know that he should have like stepped on him kind of like in that bad scene earlier where, where one of the ladies got threatened and like a bad elephant like oh, foot is on top of her head that is like really like we were talking about kind of the, rep the representation of women in this movie that is like one of the worst parts i think especially because he's yeah. like it is like that guy being like you love me at all right i love you and we will get married and whatever and then, then he like turns into like the joker just being like i'm gonna kill her it, it, yeah it's it's literally has the, like her at elephant foot point as it were <laughs> yes another thing i think i like about this the the train section though is um i love when they're robbing it i love like the shot of him pointing the gun into the like the the window yes. and then like there's that really great shot of the guy with the like i don't know like a baton or something it's like a, a rod and right. just him like waiting around the corner it's a really wonderful shot Again, I could see why it influenced, like, Spielberg, because he does, like, he loves that kind of shit. And it comes too late in the movie, though. It's just way too late after you've watched 
so much boring stuff in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Though so another thing, like more Spielberg specifically, like when we have the uh, actual cast like running around the wreckage of the train, feels very inspirational to, as we mentioned earlier, A War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah. The, the plane crash, for sure. Which, trivia, you can still see that plane crash set over at Universal Studios Hollywood. Oh, really? It's on the tram tour. That's still standing. It's been standing now for like 20 years. Oh, that's so cool. God, what a movie. That's a great movie. Let's keep talking about this other great movie that we've been talking about. The greatest show on earth, one might say. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, let's keep talking about War of the Worlds, actually. <laughs> no. <laughs> I wish. No, but I, I, like you were saying kind of earlier about like when all the, the kind of aftermath of the wreck, I, I do really like when it's like all the people kind of crawling out and like you see all these destroyed like rooms and like the, the compartments and everything like just are like twisted and turned and everything and like i i think that stuff is really great that i think paired along with i keep thinking of that opening shot with heston like driving through the the circus tent i think those elements are what demille is like doing best and kind of showing the grandiosity of it and yeah the rest of the movie just isn't really that um, no, yeah, and it's interesting, we're, while we're mentioning about DeMille, uh, we should probably talk about a bit more, like, the Oscar stuff specifically. As you mentioned, yes. this one Best Picture. Also, uh, this is the only movie we're covering this particular season that has that won two Oscars, because it won for Best Story. <laughs> so funny to look at old Oscar categories. <laughs> right, as we talked about, like, in our Rashomon episode, very funny for that. But also, giving this movie Best Story. Like, not only is it Best Picture, but the story. It just flowed so wonderfully. <laughs> it, it, a lot of people at the time were even dismissive of it, like, necessarily winning Best Picture. Because keep in mind, it's nominated against High Noon, Ivanhoe, uh, Moulin Rouge, uh, and The Quiet Man. Um, and it ends up winning. A lot of people, especially, like, in retrospective sort of articles, have said that it's... Uh, Probably because people thought Cecil B. DeMille was like, at, at this point, he was like in his 70s, he was mm -hmm. on the way out. So this feels truly kind of like a, oh, let's give him an Oscar before he dies. Which is very funny considering he makes arguably his most iconic movie <laughs> after this. That I wouldn't have minded winning a Best Picture Oscar, quite frankly. I get it with that. <laughs> yeah, and The Ten Commandments doesn't win Best Picture that year, which is very no. interesting. Um yeah, I haven't seen any of the other ones nominated, though. Um, have you, actually? I'm curious. Put a pin in that okay. between the lines. Ooh, nice. Um, though I will say I have seen High Noon. Okay. And even that, I, like, that's not my favorite Western, but it feels kind of like I get why this was very influential at the time, and I could have seen it. That was the more critically hailed movie at that particular time, because mm -hmm. it felt kind of like one of the first examples of, like, a subversive uh, neo-Western kind of thing. Sure, it's right at the okay. end of the, like, the Western period. Yeah, as opposed to like a great show on Earth, um, it, it just feels truly like it's a gimme. For like, I don't know, this guy is on his way out. He's a legend of Hollywood. He hasn't won an Oscar before. Let's give it to him for Best Picture. Not Best Director. We'll give it to him for Best Picture, specifically. Yeah, this is definitely... I can see why it's kind of dismissed as one of the worst. Would you say this is one of the worst Best Picture winners you've seen? Oh, man. Maybe... Maybe. I was actually looking at the best picture winners uh, on a list on Letterboxd a few days ago. I don't think this is one of the worst ones. I, I will say, I, I don't think it's a good movie by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's it's not very good. It, it kind of, I think, falls into that category for me as, like, boring Oscar winners, right? Like, it's kind of like, oh, that one best picture? Okay. 
Like, that's, you know, the Oscars, am I right? It's not, like, offensively bad in a way it's some... crash. <laughs> right. Because, yeah. like, I'm literally looking at my Best Picture winners, like, ranked list mm-hmm. that I have on Letterboxd. And my bottom five are from five up to one, like, worst. Uh, I have A Beautiful Mind, which I do think is quite terrible. And definitely I've never seen it, actually. <laughs> a bullshitty, schmaltzy movie. I fucking hate it. It's really bad. Uh, then The Greatest Show on Earth. Then the double whammy of similar Best Picture winners of Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy, <laughs> which are yep. pretty much the same movie. Um, and then uh, Crash is my bottom one, which if you're, I haven't seen since I was like younger. And I remember at the time like when it was like a Best Picture winner, I watched it. And it did hook me, but then every time I think back about that movie... I'm just like, I'm not, no, this all is so manipulative and shitty. Also yeah. directed by a shitty dude. Yeah. Uh, just truly like a, a black mark, more so than some others of a Best Picture winner. But Great Show on Earth is still, I think, amongst that bottom, not because of like the offensiveness, but just like truly the waste of time and resources <laughs> that it is. Real quick, I, I want to circle back a little bit to the Os- to the Oscars of this year. Um, Because you were mentioning how this won Best Story. I just want to mention that these were the other two categories of, like, screenplay. There is Best Story, Best Screenplay, and then a category Best Story and Screenplay. What? (laughs) Weird. You could just give that to the same. (laughs) Older categories for the Oscars are so weird. Um, And I will also say, just on my second point, um, my bottom, although it is Crash probably... But also Forrest Gump. I really hate that movie, and I can't believe it won Best Picture. That one's amongst my bottom ten, um, even though I have a long, weird history with Forrest Gump that has been documented elsewhere. But yeah, so uh, we've been rambling a lot about The Greatest Show on Earth, far more than I expected us to. Um, do you have any final thoughts on The Greatest Show on Earth? I don't hate this movie. I, I don't think it's terrible or anything. I, I just find it really boring. I watched it today, and I'm, I was already forgetting just things about it because it is not very memorable, even though it has some really incredible sequences in it. I think as a whole, it's just really long. Like, I, I was kind of joking that the Ten Commandments felt shorter, but, like, it kind of did in a lot of ways because, like, at least with the Ten Commandments, like, you have an intermission and you have, like, you have different points where you can kind of pause and everything and you can kind of, like, this just really drags on and it just keeps going and it just keeps going it it did give us jimmy stewart as buttons and i can't hate it because of that <laughs> as buttons um, a clown a clown I, that, that's the part i really love is a clown it has a really great sequence in that train car sequence i think that there are really cool moments here like we mentioned that opening like shot of heston like driving through the the, the circus tent I like a lot of the ideas that this movie is kind of presenting of like showmanship, the idea, like what it takes to put on a show, the behind the scene, the inner workings, the like, you know, all of that stuff. I like it. And maybe that's also another reason why it won Best Picture, maybe. Like, I think the Oscars really love, you know, movies about showmanship and like, you know, a show and all that stuff. Yeah, it's just boring. And it's kind of almost just as bad as if it were like a, a an awful movie right because it's just very forgettable even though it has great stars and everything 
and great sets and great costumes, like I said, it's also got a lot of like the rear screen projection we talked about that like it's really bad in this movie i don't know I'm, I'm, I'm glad i watched it though it is always fun to go back to these older best picture winners and kind of look into you know what was going on why did this win what what else was nominated stuff like that but um but yeah <laughs> yeah um i'm gonna make a strong declaration i think this is the worst egregious pick we've had on the show oh. i would say <laughs> Van Helsing is far more fun to watch. Wish Upon is way more fun to watch. And Tomorrowland, while you know, a movie I think is very messy, at least has a lot more ambition to it. Especially, like, this movie feels kind of like the movie that, like, when some people complain about, like, oh, I can't watch old movies, they're boring to me. This yes. is what they're talking about. Perfect example. That As opposed to, I just wanted to put out there some other Best Picture winners of this decade. This is in, like, before this, you got All About Eve which is an amazing, great drama, like, full of, like, great, kind of, like, people being catty with each other, like, fucking Betty Davis, all this other shit. An American in Paris, one of the great Gene Kelly musicals. On the Waterfront, thorny movie for a lot of reasons, but, like, you can't deny that Brando performance. Even one that I really like that is completely opposite of this movie, Marty, the 1955 Best Picture winner starring Ernest Borgnine as a guy who, like, lives at home and just ends up sparking up a romance with a lady. That one best picture, just a couple years after the fucking greatest show on earth, tried to be this like big giant spectacle movie. And I think that's that's the trouble is that you can have like a big spectacle movie that wins best picture. I'm like, I at least get it like a couple years after this is Ben Hur, speaking of like Charlton Heston. Mm -hmm. And that's a movie that like I don't love, but at the same time, like can't deny the maximalistness of it. Um, but at the same time, I feel like this kind of movie, The Greatest Show on Earth feels like a precursor to, within a decade after this, you do have stuff like the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra or Hello, Dolly. Like, these big, grand, like, productions that end up, like, kind of destroying the studio system. This feels like the early precursor to that, even though it did fine when it came out. It cost $4 million, made $36 million, which obviously that's back-in-the-day money. But at the same time, this feels kind of like the beginning of the end of, like, this kind of, like, big spectacle movie that we would get in, like, the 50s era. And I think this is, like, this is the little domino that leads to the big domino of the new age of Hollywood, I would say, this particular movie. It feels like that, at least, because it's so bloated. It has so many great actors doing, like, very little. Some of, like I said, the worst rear screen projection stuff. I've seen, like I said, green screen that looks better. <laughs> or I've seen other 50s rear screen projections that look better. Um, and it's just like, it's this long, boring waste of resources. That's my real trouble with it, is it just feels like people are burning money in front of me. <laughs> I don't find that to be very entertaining, <laughs> necessarily. Jesus. Yeah, so really dislike this one. Uh, would you say, like, what would you say is worse of, like, those egregious picks? It has to be the worst one that we've done, right? I mean... <sighs> the thing about Wish Upon is... <laughs> It is an objectively bad movie. Like, yes. I'm sorry, but it is. And I did, we did, I did have, I, I think I had more fun though when we were talking about the movie than I did watching it. Um, it might, it's tough. It's tough. It's a weird comparison as well. And like the, Van Helsing, I think is, I think Van Helsing is better actually. Cause at least Van yeah. Helsing does have like Hugh Jackman and you know, Richard cool... Roxburgh. Remember our Richard favorite Roxburgh, Dracula? Of course, my children. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's between this or wish upon, which 
God, what a cursed double feature. <laughs> I mean, look, one is much shorter and much more entertaining to watch, I would argue, on every level. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. This is the only podcast where you can get Wish Upon V, Greatest Show on Earth Discourse. Oh, That's boy. what we provide out there to the podcast. But That's what makes us different. <laughs> well, on that note, let's go ahead and get into our uh, regular segment, Between the Lines. So Between the Lines is a segment that uh, Brian and I do every episode uh, in which we, you know, recommend another movie that either maybe uh, is related to the movie that we're talking about today or maybe is like an alternate pick for whatever letter we're doing, like E for Egregious. So I'm going to go ahead and start off with my pick, which I kind of teased earlier when you asked me about have I seen any other Best Picture nominees from the 25th Academy Awards, uh, much like a great show on Earth was. And uh, I ended up watching The Quiet Man uh, from director John Ford, uh, starring John Wayne. And uh, basically the plot of this is it takes place in like the 1920s, uh, and John Wayne plays Sean Thornton, uh, who is this uh, guy who's lived in the U.S. his whole life, but he was born in Ireland originally. Um, So he returns and decides to buy the very house that he was born in. Uh, But as it turns out, um, someone else lives there. Um, it's this uh, woman who's played by Maureen O'Hara, um, who uh, had bought this house uh, through money that her brother had, who is uh, Squire, played by Victor McLaughlin. And uh, basically, it ends up being romantic dramedy of sorts, where like he and Maureen O'Hara end up kind of like getting close to each other, and they end up actually getting married. Uh, but at a certain point uh, at the wedding the brother who has all the money is like, I'm not going to give you the dowry. It's all mine. I'm not going to give you any of this money. And John Wayne is very much like, oh, I don't know. I think that's fine. We don't really need money as long as we have each other. And Moreno here is like, no, but I wanted that money so I could finally be like from under my brother's thumb. And so it's a lot of that kind of conflict that's going on there. I think O'Hara and Wayne have phenomenal chemistry in this movie. Um, and I think even just... The, the atmosphere of it, like this one along with uh, Best Director for John Ford, it won Best Cinematography Color, which we should know this is at the time when they divide that between color and black and white, which I get more than like Best Story. That Yeah, that makes more sense because it's a different process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yes. The cinematography in this is gorgeous. Like they shoot a lot in Ireland. There is some rear screen projection, but it looks decent. Like I'm not fucking bugging myself out like Grace Show on Earth. Um, and it's, like, very lush, and even, like, obviously, a lot of people know this movie as, like, uh, at least how I'd heard of it prior, um, was a lot of Irish stereotypes, and the whole Mm -hmm. town is definitely full of, uh, guys who could just be leprechauns, uh, (laughs) but at the same time, I think, like, they are, like, those actors are very charming, like, Ward Bond, who's one of my favorite old actors from around this time, plays, like, the father who keeps trying to catch fish, He's very funny. Or Victor McLagan even is like our villain. He kind of has like a weird like Bluto from the Popeye cartoons kind of energy where he's just like cool. the big brute dude. Uh, there's 
some other troublesome stuff besides like the Irish stereotypes. Like the relationship between John Wayne and Maureen O'Hare is interesting. I mean, it's taking place in the twenties, but there's a lot of like sort of sexism that's obviously like of that time that they're depicting, but also of like even the time it was made and something like that that feels a bit awkward, but O'Hara has, like, such a real strength to her, I think, as a performer. Like, her and Wayne have, like I said, phenomenal chemistry, but even she, unlike, you know, what we were talking about earlier with uh, the Betty Hutton character, she wants to be, like, independent. She still likes being, like, you know, John Wayne's wife. She's in love with him. But at the same time, she's like, I just don't want to be under my fucking brother anymore. I want to, like, have my own experiences not be, like, constantly tied to, like, having to have his money and whatnot. So that's why I want that dowry so much. And you really, like, get invested in that even when some of those details with their relationship are irksome and might like put people off and I get it. But at the same time, there's still like this like weird fairy tale charm to the whole movie. It, it has like the sweeping romance and these great shots. Also, I think the other big thing people know about this movie, the last like 20 minutes of this are just John Wayne and Victor McLaglen having a massive brawl that goes throughout the town. Like they fight the shit out of each other. <laughs> And I love there's a bit where they, like, stop to have a beer and one of them, like, spits out a tooth and it's like, you fight real good, buddy. <laughs> stuff like, that. like it, is, it is also a very funny, charming movie, like I said. Uh, so I would definitely recommend uh, you not watch The Greatest Show on Earth and instead watch The Quiet Man, a dated movie. But I still think a lush, beautiful movie that also, I think, has one of the better John Wayne performances I've seen. I haven't seen a lot of, like... The big Wayne ones, but this one he actually gets to be kind of like funny. He gets to be a bit vulnerable. It shows a lot more nuance than the average John Wayne kind of like caricature. There's not he doesn't say Pilgrim once. Oh damn it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is um this is not one of the John Ford movies I've, I've seen actually. Um, I've only seen a few of his movies, but I, I also only knew of this because of kind of the the whole Irish stereotype thing. Yeah, I would like to see it. I, I, I need to kind of watch more John Ford movies. I've loved what I've seen so far. Um, I recently watched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is a phenomenal movie. Great fucking um, movie. He does say yeah. Pilgrim in that one. A much better movie than Sammy Fableman saw in the theater. That's true. Yes. Oh, and you know what? By the way, I forgot to mention the other connection this has. Um, the Quiet Man is also played in a Spielberg movie in E.T. during the whole, like, frog scene like frog dissection scene where oh, E.T.'s watching a movie what... on TV, it's from The Quiet Man. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Also an interesting connection of uh, John Wayne and Charlton Heston, two iconic screen figures who are also very complicated people. <laughs> um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, Look, I'll pry that opinion from your cold, dead hands. <laughs> oh boy. Um... But what's your recommendation, or maybe not recommendation, <laughs> Yes, for this week, Brian? So, well, as we were kind of talking about the the egregious pick, we didn't want to talk about, like, we mentioned Crash, right? Which is just a, we don't want to talk about that movie. Like, it's such a... That's a minefield. Movie. Yes, exactly. We could talk about the dumb circus movie. We're not going to talk about Crash. <laughs> but I wanted to do what it did not win Best Picture, but baffling that this movie won any Oscars because I've told you recently I've been thinking a lot about Meryl Streep and I've also just been thinking a lot about like Oscar bait movies because I think we're still in this conversation of like Oscar bait movies and I I don't think we have the same kind of Oscar bait movies as we did say in the early 2000s and early 2010s which is an era I'm kind of fascinated by of these weird Oscar bait kind of movies and I'm recommending 
what is maybe the worst movie to ever win an Oscar, I think, that I've oh. seen so far. And that is The Iron Lady, which, again, I only watched this because it was Meryl Streep, who I love, and I've been thinking about a lot recently. And um, if you don't know, this is a biopic of Margaret Thatcher, uh, Satan herself. Look, I think this movie is absolute vile garbage. I, I'll, I'll just be very blunt about it. I love Meryl Streep. I think she is a wonderful actor, and I, I feel confident saying this because she has like three Oscars and she has been nominated at least three times every decade for the past like four decades, which is insane to think about. And she won her Oscar for this, and I cannot believe she won an Oscar for this because I think it's a really bad performance from her. And I think the movie itself is just garbage, absolutely just trash. It is a movie that, even if it doesn't want to side with Margaret Thatcher, which I think it kind of does in some ways, it uses that sort of idea that, you know, she was the only woman and she was just, she was telling it like it is. And it's using that sort of feminist angle to sort of tell her story, which is a really horrifying story if you read about anything that Margaret Thatcher did. And, you know, for example, there's a scene where she's talking with, like, the Secretary of War of, like, America. And he's like, Margaret, I've been to war. Like, this, you, you can't do this. Like, this is bad. Like, please stop doing this. And she says, unironically, well, I've been to war because I am a woman and I, every day has been a war in my life. It is just absolute nonsense and absolute garbage. And, it, yeah, it treats kind of that idea of like her being the only woman the first woman to do this and kind of ignores all of her just absolutely awful policies and just everything about her which is awful um and even the supporting cast here which is like jim broadbent who i also love is just not really doing much um olivia coleman the, maybe the my favorite part of this movie because she's just fine she plays her daughter and she's there and is like just has a few scenes uh phoebe waller bridge shows up at a certain point very mm -hmm. just cool to see her in a movie um and like richard e grant is in there and everything but um yeah i really hated this and a lot of it is i i kind of joke to myself that this movie is um margaret thatcher needs to think about her whole life before she dies um <laughs> And yeah, just so much of the performances are baked in this makeup, which it's one of these, like, an actor doing a caricature, and they're just put in, like, 500 pounds of makeup, and she's just, like, oh, oh, confused the whole time. It's a, it's a really bad performance, I think, and it's exasperated by the fact, and I cannot stress this enough, that Meryl Streep won the Oscar over Rooney Mara in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo which is an unbelievable performance and is kind of one of those like transformative performance where an actor kind of changes their entire look, but is so incredible, incredibly well done in that movie. And that performance is just unbelievable. And um, yeah, I, I can't believe that Meryl Streep won for this movie. It is absolutely just awful and vile and I hated it. And the only good thing that came from it from me watching this was it kind of made me want to watch The Crown again which is a show i actually really like but yeah the iron lady uh, you have seen this movie thomas um 
<laughs> what, what, what do you think of, of the Iron Lady? We uh, covered this on Double Edge Double Bill as the bad oh, pick okay. for our Meryl Streep episode. That's the main reason why I saw it. Um, and, I mean, it's been a couple years since then. Uh, it's definitely fucking awful. I remember it just, especially when, like, there's all these controversies, like you mentioned about Margaret Thatcher. She's such a, like, awful, vile politician, if you, like, really look into her policies, like you mentioned. But at the same time, had, like, that kind of element of, like, she's the first British prime minister who was a woman, stuff like that. There's a lot of fascinating things you can talk about in that movie. And then, like you mentioned, they kind of try and turn her just, like, into a girl boss kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I just, like, there's a scene... And, like, you've seen this movie, this scene in other movies, obviously, that, like, touch on, like, you know, ideas of, like, the first woman to do something where she's at a dinner with all men. And she basically, like, says, like, you know, I think poor people, they, sh- they just need to, like, save money. And then I- that's what I would do. I'm not poor. But if I, was, if I was one of those disgusting little poor people, that's what I would do. And all the men who are treated, they're treated as, like, the enemy. They're like, no, I don't think that that's where we should take our national policy um i think that poor people are you know they we need to help them because we're the government and yeah it just treats her like this girl boss but in the most just like disgusting way um sorry i cut you off there yeah go go ahead it also doesn't help the movie like it's shot so flatly true like the whole movie has like a gray smear kind of color palette to it um and especially when like I feel I I would hate this movie even more if I watched it again because post this I've seen something like uh, Pablo Rain Spencer, which I feel like mm-hmm. does a, tries to kind of do a, a similar kind of like almost horror tinged version of like uh, the this person because like aside from the stuff that you're talking about that feels very like girl boss typical biopic, there are all these scenes that are of Margaret Thatcher with dementia seeing the ghost of fucking Jim Broadbent. Mm-hmm. And that shit is like the worst stuff because it's trying to be like, oh, it's kind of like this haunted thing of like her being visited by like her fucking husband who she loved so dearly, I guess, because they danced to what was it? The King and I. Yeah. Right? yeah. The fucking <laughs> shall we dance bullshit. That's like their connective tissue and whatnot. Um, yeah, it, it feels like that stuff feels like way lesser versions of like what Pablo Lorraine did with Spencer. In terms yeah. of kind of having a horror-tinged element to, like, this British person with, like, some kind of, like, power and esteem attached. I love trashy biopics. I love, like I said, I love The Crown. I love, I, I like these kinds of, I'm, as a as an American, I'm kind of interested in, like, the history of the monarchy and, like, the British government. Because I'm, I grew up in America. And, like, yeah, but, but it's just a, also just a bad movie. It's a bad version of that movie. Especially it, how it just fucking hand-waves the Falklands. It just so hand waves it away. <laughs> yes, it is like horrible. I mean, just yeah, absolutely awful. Again, from a moral perspective, it's disgusting. From a film perspective, it is just very bad. I mean, like Jim Broadbent, who like I love, but is just like there, just being like, oh, oh, you're 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 going through it, aren't you? Oh well, I'm here. I'm a ghost. Like you know, he's just, he's just <laughs> I'm here for you, Fetchy. Yeah. <laughs> because oh god yeah it's it's a really bad movie i think it might be one of the worst movies to win any oscar it it also won best makeup i believe which i don't even think the makeup looks good Uh, i mean it looks she looks like margaret thatcher but like congrats (laughs) i guess right and by the way that's a very infamous oscar year as well uh that like the 2011 oscars that's the same year where the artist wins best picture and it's 
it's a lot of like awards like this. Like this particular like to relate it to like the greatest show on earth feels truly like the like oh we have to give Meryl another Oscar. We gotta give it to right. her. We gotta have her get like the brass ring third one. Especially when like if they had just waited down in like five or six years, perfect for like the post. I would have oh totally been down. That's easily, I think, her best of the recent nominations. She's yeah. so great in that movie. Well, you don't like uh, Florence Foster Jenkins or... Uh, or Into the Woods? Yeah. Into the Woods, which she was also nominated for. Right, exactly. Yeah, her, her 2010s Oscar run is not great. But, like, yeah, The Post, she's phenomenal. I, I was thinking of The Post, of just, like, God, Meryl kills it in that movie. And, and this, it's just... It, it's, it's just nothing. It, it's absolutely nothing. And, like, again, she's a great actor. She's earned a bad movie or two, but this is, this is awful. Um. <laughs> yeah, and truly, I agree with you, like a textbook definition of particularly like that 2010s era Oscar bait. Because correct me if I'm wrong, this is this was like a Weinstein production, it's, right? Uh, it's a Weinstein, I believe. In the U.S., it was I, I, at least makes sense and is like, yeah, just that perfect example of the type of Oscar bait movie that I, I think, we don't get as many of these anymore, and. Even when we did, they weren't nearly as bad as this. But I, I'm, I'm kind of personally fascinated with these kinds of movies and how they try to just vie for awards and stuff, um, which I find interesting. But the last thing I really want to mention, honestly, about this is just that this was directed by a lady named Philia Lloyd. She's only made three movies, but I like how her three movies kind of form a statement. Mamma Mia, The Iron Lady herself. <laughs> Dude. Yes, because her three movies are uh, Mamma Mia from 2008, The Iron Lady from 2011, and Herself from 2020. Yeah, which I haven't seen Herself. I have seen Mamma Mia. I do not like the first Mamma Mia film. Um, I really like Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Uh, yeah. But I am not a fan of the first movie and, and what Pierce Brosnan does to one of the greatest pop songs ever written. Yeah, the, th the first thing I think about that movie is not its direction necessarily. As much as right. just like, I don't know, all these celebrities getting wine drunk and doing ABBA <laughs> covers. Like, fine, whatever. You don't need a lot of directorial effort for that, I guess. But uh, yeah, on that note, let's go ahead and wrap this segment up by repeating our titles for everybody out there. So they can add uh, these movies to your watch list or don't, depending on the title. Um, I would personally recommend that you do watch, instead of perhaps The Greatest Show on Earth, uh, the 1952 Other Best Picture nominee from John Ford, The Quiet Man. Yes, and I would not recommend watching unless you're interested in Meryl Streep's career or just Oscar stuff in general, or you hate yourself. <laughs> but I recommend, under huge quotations, uh, 2011's The Iron Lady from Phyllida Lloyd. Yeah, interesting. Uh, the Iron Lady and the Quiet Man. What kind of adventures would they get wow, up to? What a couple. <laughs> what a couple. Power couple, truly. Well, on that note, uh, let's go ahead and start our wrapping things up. Uh, we want to thank some people while we're wrapping up. Here we want to thank Burial Grid for our music for the show. Purchase this music at BurialGrid.com. Thanks to Michelle Kyle for our artwork. Find her at MishKyle96 on Twitter. And thanks to our supporters on Patreon. Patreon.com slash cinema number two letter. Where for just $1 a month, you get to vote for certain episodes that we cover. Uh, you know, certain topics, and also you get to listen to bonus podcasts. Like, around this time, we would have already released our The Critic retrospective uh, the previous month, and um, we're definitely going to be doing our Los Awards. Uh, that'll be at the end of February, yeah. uh, where we pick the winners ourselves, the nominees and winners. Uh, okay. By the way, we the Academy Award nominations recently came out. 
uh, at the time we're recording this very fascinating list um that i think uh, we might be able to beat yeah Brian, not, not happy with the oscars neither are we that's why we're we're fixing them ourselves <laughs> exactly we're fixing them and uh, giving them a way better name like the los awards <laughs> yeah and you know speaking of those los awards uh last week we mentioned about uh, the Cineast patrons submitting their choices for the Cineast Choice Award for the Loses. Uh, you all submitted your uh, top fives, and we accumulated um, a top three that the Cineast can vote on starting tomorrow on uh, Valentine's Day, for all you lovers out there. Uh, all you Cineast patrons will be able to vote on the uh, official finalists for the Los Award, Cineast Choice Award. Um, in which you all get to pick between uh, the top three that recurred through those top fives, uh, which would be um, Anatomy of a Fall, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, and Godzilla Minus One. Those are the three finalists that the seniors will get to vote on, starting, like I said, on the 14th. And you all will have until this coming Sunday, uh, when this episode is released on the 18th, will be the final day that votes will be tabulated uh, for, once again, the seniorest choice award finalists between like i said anatomy of a fall spider-man across the spider-verse and godzilla minus one those three uh will be up on the poll over on the patreon and for one dollar you'd be able to access that and vote between which of those three gets the coveted first sinuous choice award you can find us on instagram twitter and facebook at cinema number two letter uh, for, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, especially on Twitter, where I'm sure we're being followed by a bunch of porn bots at this time. We've had just so many porn bot followers. It's so annoying. <laughs> so fucking, annoying. Truly. Fucking Twitter, man. <laughs> Great place. Um, uh, but yeah, we're at Cinema Number 2 Letter on any of the socials. You can find me. Uh, I am on, you know, Letterboxd or Twitter as at not the who's Tommy. And I also do some writing at uh, marianithomas.wordpress.com and at film-cred.com. And I should shout out that uh, the same day this episode is releasing, you should also be able to hear an episode of the Target Audience podcast, in which myself and host Ben Miller talked about Adam Wingard's The Guest. Uh, that was the movie I picked to discuss. A lot of fun talking about that film over there, once again, at the Target Audience podcast. Uh, yeah, and you can find me on Twitter uh, at B-R-Y-A-N-D-R-A-D-E and the number three. Uh, and also on Letterboxd at my name, where I am much more active, and I'm watching a bunch of movies. So, yeah, follow me on there. And uh, for more of us in audio form, you can uh, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, why not listen to all the other great shows, the true greatest shows on Earth, <laughs> um, over there in that in that feed. Uh, and you can uh, dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed. For, uh, you know, all the previous seasons of Cinema to the Letter we've done, and also the old Double-Edged Double Bill stuff. Hear me talk about the Iron Lady from, like, a couple of years ago. That was a pandemic episode. So I'm oh, sure it's fun. I'm so um, sorry for your mental state at that time. <laughs> and it's all recorded. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you can't support us on the Patreon, that's cool. Money can be tight. The free way to help us out is just to rate, review, or simply share the show around to give us more visibility so we can stop doing these trapeze acts they don't work in an audio format brian i keep telling you it's not working i've been recording this episode 40 feet in the air actually this entire time that's true he's hanging upside down all the blood's rushed to his head <laughs> that's why i watched the iron lady <laughs> <laughs> that's how he watched the iron lady in that position that's true 
Um, but yes, uh, now we should tease our next episode, our M for Masterpiece we'll be talking about, which was chosen by the patrons. Like I mentioned, patreon.com slash cinema number two letter, the sinniest patrons out there, as we call you. Um, ended up choosing our M for Masterpiece for this season. We will be doing uh, Michael Clayton. Oh, baby. We, the pick-me-up we need after The Greatest Show on Earth. Yeah. Truly, that's what I call The Greatest Show on Earth. Michael oh. Clayton, just George Clooney getting a cell phone up to Tilda Swinton's face. An absolutely thrilling movie that has more life in it than this movie has, like, in just any bit. <laughs> it's really. just people, like, walking around and talking to each other. It's so great. Oh, man. God, I'm excited. So excited for that. And we'll, t- we'll be talking about that next week. But until then, everybody... Brian, you know, we gotta get on the run. After this episode, we gotta dress up as clowns and we gotta join the circus. I'm gonna start only wearing clown makeup the entire time. <laughs> right, which will play wonderfully once again in audio form. We just keep coming up with great ways great. to enhance the audio here. 